Well, good morning. Pleasure to be back with you all once again. One of the things I always deeply enjoy about preaching at this particular church, and I've been preaching all over the place. I preached at least, I think this is the 13th sermon I preached this year already, and we're pretty new in the year, so there's always floating around preaching at one church or another. And of all the churches that I've visited, and there's a good handful of them, this church reads the most scripture in the, in the corporate worship. And I always appreciate that. You read big chunks of scripture, and that's a beautiful thing, as the word of God is a communal event, it's a living event that we encounter, or better yet, we are encountered by it. So I don't think it would be too much to ask to have you listen to just a little bit more as we did not read our sermon text today. So I'll read our sermon text before we jump into it. It is the famous opening of Paul's letter to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Telling Elder Mark before, it's a passage that I love so much, and I think it's such a capstone passage for the Bible that I force all of my freshmen to memorize it. So when you see young Emma Spanger here next time, ask her if she can recite to you Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. She better be able to. It's a beautiful passage. And I make her memorize that, and all of my other freshmen, at least at the high school level. I don't make my college freshmen memorize it. But at the high school level, I make them memorize it in an Old Testament history class. Because this is not some New Testament Christianity that we preach, but Ephesians 1, 3, 3 through 14 summarizes the whole of our faith. It's beautiful. So listen to these beautiful words from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. The book of Ephesians, one of my favorite books in the Bible. Not supposed to have favorites, but I have two favorites. They're John and Ephesians. And I could spend my whole life with just those two books. I have a personal devotional habit that I picked up over the quarantine period. And in my personal devotions, I spend time writing the Bible by hand in the morning. Not much, 10, 15 verses, maybe a day. And I started off writing through the book of Ephesians. And it's a remarkable thing that will happen when you're going that slow. And I tell myself in my head, hey, Justin, pretend you're one of the scribes where you can't make any mistakes. 
get the punctuation right, get the capitalization right, the commas, the semicolons, the quotations. Don't mess it up. Be slow and steady with the passage. And I worked my way through Ephesians. Now I'm working my way through the Gospel of John. And it's a remarkable thing that is done for me. But I love doing that with Ephesians. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, has been called by many theologians the quintessence of Paulinism. The quintessence of Paulinism. And although the letter is addressed in chapter 1 to the church in Ephesus, or more specifically to the saints in Ephesus, this was most certainly a circular letter. It was one of the letters of Paul that was to be distributed to all the churches in Asia Minor. And this letter was to be read by all the churches. Because in it, we see Paul sort of weaving together all of the major themes that we find elsewhere in the Pauline corpus. He weaves all of these themes together in Ephesians into this unified, beautiful, remarkable tapestry. Ephesians is almost providentially Paul's theological editorial on his other letters. It's a wonderful way to look at Ephesians. Ephesians is Paul's theological editorial on his other works. And because of this, Ephesians has also been called the crown of Paulinism. Ephesians is the crown of Paulinism. This is the crown jewel of Pauline thought, who is the chief apostle of the church of Jesus Christ. In the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1 alone, Paul directly touches on the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of adoption, salvation, substitutionary atonement, ecclesiology, the eschatological work of the spirit, just to name a few in 14 verses. Ephesians is both holy and incredibly dense ground. That is why Ephesians has also been called by commentators the Waterloo of commentators. This is the Waterloo of commentators. This is where even the best exegetes come to die. This is where they give up their ghost. So we're going to do the very best we can to handle this very daunting text with the care and reverence which, which, which it deserves. We will not do it complete justice as nobody can. And as I was saying to Mark before, this is a text that really deserves to have six, seven, eight, nine sermons preached directly from it. I have a good friend of mine who preached from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 for about three months. And you could probably preach more. But as we approach the text, we're going to approach it under three headings today. The doxology, the blessings, and the cosmic purpose. That's the way that we'll look at this dense text. The doxology, the blessings, the cosmic purpose. So first, the doxology. Ephesians is one of Paul's last letters. And as such, as we just noted, it is sort of an editorial on his previous letters. It's a summary, a condensed highlight reel. It's a tour de force. In it, we see the apostle imprisoned for Christ, systematically summarizing all of his lifetime's work. And Paul here is right at the end of his life. And in Ephesians, we see to steal from the great theologian Gerhardus Voss. We see a luminosity radiating from the core of condensed ideas. A luminosity radiating from the core of condensed ideas. I like to ask myself, could anyone ever say that about my theologizing? 
Oh, when, when, when Justin, when he talks about the book of John, you know what we see? We see a luminosity radiating from the core of condensed ideas. That's the ideal. You want people to be able to say that about you. That's what we have here with Paul. This is a man, Paul that is, who has been encountered, shaken, and stirred to his very core by the risen Christ. And here we see the culmination of his lifetime's work his lifetime of service. And we should ask ourselves then, so what's the first thing that he wants to tell us? What's the first thing he chooses to tell us? What's the first thing that Paul does? Well, he bursts forth with a volcanic eruption of praise. That's the first thing that Paul does in his theological editorial on all his other works. He bursts forth with a volcanic eruption of praise. And that's a very fitting response for us, the church, here in the wake of the resurrection of Christ. Post-Easter, how should we react to the truth of the risen Christ? We should burst forth with praise. Paul here, he can't help himself. He can't help but jump into sort of a doxological worship of the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. Look at verse 3 of our text. He starts off right away. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, the use of the word blessed there to start off in verse 3, this reflects a form of a Jewish prayer known as the Bereka, the Bereka. So when Paul says blessed here, he is not requesting that God bless him or that God bless the saints in Ephesus, or that God bless the saints wherever they might be reading the letter at that given moment. Rather, Paul is engaging in an act of worship, offering God praise, praise, offering God honor, offering God glory. And this is an act of worship that you kind of feel when you're reading Ephesians that just shoots out of the very core of Paul's being. He almost can't help himself. As I'm sure many of you are familiar with, in the original Greek, our passage today, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's one single sentence. Right? It's like Paul's got all of his words and he's like, ah, I just can't stop. I have to bless God. I have to praise God. No time for commas. No time for period. I'm squeezing it all in into one sentence. So when I tell those freshmen that they have to memorize this passage, it's one sentence. Let's memorize one sentence. Relax. It, it can't possibly be that hard. But this is one long, glorious, praise-drenched sentence. It is arguably the greatest sentence ever penned. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic by that at all. I challenge anybody to find a single sentence in the history of history that matches this sentence. Our whole text is one sentence. So Paul's first large statement in Ephesians, it is an act of unadulterated, theologically informed worship. He wants to, it seems like he can't help but bless God. And we should notice, notice the God that he is blessing. Paul is not blessing generic deity X. This is not some strange, or I was going to say strange, some normal anthropological desire to worship something that is beyond us. 
C.S. Lewis, among many other theologians, they do a wonderful job noting that mankind, wherever you find him, his natural position is to be on his knees in worship. We always feel like we're lesser, no matter where the tribe, the people group, we're lesser, something is greater. We should be worshiping something. We have to be worshiping something. Now, that's all well and true. But that is absolutely not what's going on here with Paul. Paul is not simply feeling that something is greater than him and he must be worshiping that thing. But Paul bursts forth into doxological blessing of a very, very specific God. This is not generic deity X. He bursts forth in blessing and praise of the God who elects, a God who predestines, a God who redeems, a God who adopts. And Paul here, this is really important for good Calvinists and good Reformed theologians to get here. Paul is the chief theologian of the church. He does not set out here in Ephesians to investigate the work of Christ. He does not interrogate or try to rationalize the doctrine of election. He's not trying to rationalize the doctrine of predestination or redemption. He's not engaged in any sort of sophistry or scientific investigation or interrogation of God's sovereign plan or his purpose. Far from it. That's not what Paul's doing here at all. He celebrates God's plan now revealed in the risen and ascended Christ. That's Paul's reaction to the doctrines of election and predestination and the sovereignty of God. Praise God. Can I ask you, is that how we normally respond to these doctrines? Is that our first reaction when we encounter the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? No, I tend to see that we fret over these doctrines. We try to rationalize the sovereignty of God. A God who predestines and elects and adopts and glorifies in and through his son. Paul explodes like a burst fire hydrant of praise. For us, the doctrines, these doctrines specifically, the ones that are sort of most noted to be part of the Reformed tradition, they tend to produce anxiety in us. They produce angst. For some of us, they might produce guilt. How is it that God can say, I love this one and hated that one? How do I square that? How do I rationalize that? How do I understand free will in light of this? All right, we want to square that circle. We want it to be all tidy and neat. For Paul, these doctrines don't produce angst or anger or anxiety. For him, they are a wellspring of uncontrollable joy. And the whole letter, all of Ephesians, it grows out of this act of worship, this doxological worship. Now, if you guys are familiar with the rest of the Pauline corpus, the rest of the letters of Paul, which I'm certain that you are, you'd be familiar with Paul's imitation language, his imitation language. Paul tells us over and over again what we as Christians now take as an a priori. It's just a fancy way of saying obvious, tautological, something we know for a fact. He tells us over and over again something that we take for an obvious fact, that we're to imitate Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. We want to imitate Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He often tells his readers that we ought to imitate him. We're to imitate Christ, but Paul also says, imitate me. Take 1 Corinthians 11, 1, for example. Paul says, be imitators of me 
as I am of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Once again, Paul has been encountered by the risen Christ. He has spent his lifetime proclaiming him as king. He's been swimming in the deep waters of the boundless riches of God's sovereign, electing, predestining, adopting grace. And now he calls upon you and I to imitate him. And you know what that means then in a very real sense? When people talk to you about these doctrines, when people talk to you about a particular passage of the scripture, you should sound like Paul. At the very least, you should sound a lot more like Paul than you did when you first came to faith. You should be progressively sounding more and more like Paul when somebody comes up to you and you say, you know, Jim, when he was talking to me about that passage, he sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. That's the ideal. That's what we should be aiming for. So if we're to be like Paul, we cannot be Christians that smack people over the head with the doctrine of election. We can't smack them over the head with the doctrine of predestination or the sovereignty of God. That does not mean we do not preach them. That does not mean we do not affirm them as true. But our fundamental position in front of those texts should be, these are sources of joy, first and foremost, not something to fret over. The church needs to remember that our position is that of first and foremost, being a listening community. Once again, that's why I love that you guys read so much scripture here. Your first and primary position is to be a listening community. One that listens attentively, carefully, daily, and communally to the word. You are to be a community that is vigilantly enthralled with digesting the word. And then, and only then, having been overcome with the grandeur of scripture, praise God. That's the position of the church. Listen, listen, listen. When you're done listening, listen again, then listen again, then praise God. My, my little children, two of them at least, my two oldest, Leah and Judah, they attend Chapel Field Elementary School which you guys are all familiar with the school because of Pastor Spanier. And that elementary school has adopted this cute little slogan that they now, it's, it's put on t-shirts, it's all over the walls of the school. But it's more than just a cute little slogan. It's actually something that is really, really profound, as is often the case, right? The most childish things are often very, very profound. Guys like G.K. Chesterton is always good at pointing out there's truth far greater in fairy tales than in many of the things we consume of. But the slogan that they have, you can walk up to any of these little punk elementary school students and you can say, hey, you know, Billy, what do Chapel Field Lions do? And they'll say, Chapel Field Lions listen, they learn, and they love. They listen, they learn, they love. And that's a, a, a remarkable little trinity of things that we should be doing as the church. We listen first, listen, 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 and learn from what we've been listening to. And then our response should be to go forth and love the God that has allowed us to listen and love our neighbors as ourselves. Listen, listen, learn, and then burst forth with love and praise. And this idea, what I'm calling for here for the position of the church, 
it's by no means some form of quiet pietism. It's no means of retreating from the world. But we, the church, need to learn from Paul that we're first and foremost a listening community. We are a receiving community. And then after that, a doxologically driven praising community. So here then, according to Paul, who we're supposed to imitate, this is the pedagogical key to getting others to see the truth of the doctrine of election and predestination. It's not, once again, breaking out your nun's ruler and cracking them over the knuckles with it, or trying to establish the logical necessities of the conclusion from the given premises. But rather, we ought to imitate Paul in praising the God from whom all blessings flow. Sanctified people are praise-filled people. Sanctified people are praise-first people. And that brings us to our second point, the blessings, the blessings. Look, if you would, at the first two verses of our text, verses three and four. They read once again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, we are to imitate Paul as he blesses God. But we should ask ourselves, why and how are we able to bless God? How are we able to bless God? Well, the text tells us because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see the pattern there. God always blesses first. And this is a pattern that is continually hammered home to anybody that is part of the listening community of the church. Scripture hammers home the point over and over and over again that God speaks first. Right? God called Adam into existence. Adam then responds to his creator. <laughs> Abraham does not just pick up and leave. God calls him. Abraham responds. God calls Moses. Moses goes. And that is why traditionally, as your church does, the Christian service, the corporate worship of God, has always started with a call to worship. It's a call to worship. The minister, as the representative of Christ to the flock, he summons the congregation into the presence of God who blesses them. And it's only then that the congregation can then praise God. It's only then that they can worship God. Your liturgy teaches you a lot if you listen to it, if you pay attention to it. God calls you into his worship. He blesses you. And because he has blessed you, you can then bless him back. You can't just stumble into his presence on your own. God calls, we respond. God blesses, we worship God. God elects, we respond to his election. After all, we can't come to God first. As Paul will tell us and make explicit later on in this very letter, in that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says, but you were dead in your trespasses. Dead men cannot wander towards God. They can't make the first move. God has to first breathe life, rejuvenating life into the dead. There's the gift. Now I can respond. But you were dead. God calls, we respond. God calls, he makes us alive. Just as he breathed life into the dirt to form Adam, he breathed life into those that he calls. 
so that we might respond in worship. So having been called and blessed, let's take a moment to examine what exactly these blessings are. What are the blessings that we, his church, receive from the resurrected Christ? Well, the text tells us that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, just like with Hebrews. It's not, he will bless you with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessings are those blessings concerning the life of the spirit. They are, once again, to use that big theological term, they are pneumatological gifts. Pneumatological just means spiritual. The gifts of the spirits are for spiritual beings. And that is because you and I, we are pneumatological creatures. We are creatures that the New Testament tells us have died with and been raised with Christ. The New Testament is very clear that we are no longer corporal, physical, Adamic men and women. But having been united to Christ by the work of the Spirit, we are eschatological beings. We are future beings. We are spiritual beings right now, at this very moment. Do you believe that? And as spiritual beings, what type of gifts would you receive? It's only fitting that spiritual beings would receive spiritual gifts. Physical beings receive physical gifts. Spiritual beings receive spiritual gifts. And you and I, we're not left in some position where we have to guess what these gifts are. The gifts aren't some private, individualized talent. We know exactly what these chief spiritual gifts are. Because Paul immediately enumerates them in our passage. Here's the spiritual gifts that you've been blessed with. Election. Adoption. Forgiveness of sins. The gift of the spirit that unites you to Christ. And hence, if you've been given the spirit that unites you to Christ, you have the surety, not just the hope, but the surety of face-to-face -face communion with God. God, by uniting us to Christ pneumatologically, spiritually, he's given us himself. He's given us access to his presence. The God that was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, became man. That we, through his poverty, might become rich. That we might receive all the spiritual blessings, namely, himself. That's the blessing. Christ is the blessing. We want to be careful that we don't cheapen the blessing. Make it something lesser than what it is. You know what the spiritual blessings are? Access to God's presence. Anything lesser than that is cheapening what Christ has done for you. Anything less than that is anthropomorphizing what he's done for you. Anything less than that is an atomizing or going back to the Adamic corporal way of things. But you're a spiritual being. You receive spiritual blessings. You have the access to God's presence. That's the blessing that you have. Now we should ask ourselves, where exactly do these blessings that we have been blessed with occur? Where do the blessings occur? The text tells us that this great praiseworthy God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
So the blessings come from heaven and they're received in heaven. And notice as we've been harping on here, the text tells us that God has present tense blessed us. Not that he will bless us. Which means that if he has blessed us in the heavenly places, here's where we can do some logic. If he has blessed us in the heavenly places, that means in a very real sense, you and I right now, we have come to the heavenly places. The blessings come from another world and they're intended for another world. They're intended for a new creation. For a resurrected creation. For what the church fathers often called the third race. The third race. Those who are inhabitants of a new reality. The reality that you and I were originally created for. Now, if you pay attention to a very, very famous passage of scripture, one that I'm sure all of you know, Genesis 1-1, there's something that you might have been missing in Genesis 1-1 if you're anything like me. It's a passage that I know you all know by heart. But it wasn't until a, a great theologian and a good friend of mine, a man by the name of Dr. Lane Tipton, who's a fantastic systematician. He was the head of Westminster Theological Seminary's uh, theology department for many years. As he brought to my attention and he kind of showed me for the first time, it was, wow, I fundamentally misread that basic passage my entire life. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created, notice this, the heavens and the earth. And you might be thinking right now, yeah, Justin, haven't really elucidated anything there. I always knew that. No, no, no. Listen, listen to the words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the important thing there that I was missing all along is in Genesis 1-1, when it uses the word heavens there, it's not talking about the skies or that which is above the earth. Later on in the book of Genesis, heavens will be used in that context. But in Genesis 1-1, we are getting an account of the creation of heaven itself. The throne room of God, populated with angelic beings who worship God. So in the very act of creation, right off the bat, God creates two realities. A higher reality, heaven, and earth, a lower reality. And Adam inhabits the lower reality, creation, who are confessional creeds, the confessional creed of your church. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, will tell us that Adam could have advanced from the lower reality to the higher reality had he acted in such a way, a phrase that I use so much from our confessions that my students have shorthanded for me. They say, yeah, Adam had to act with P-P-E-O, P-P-E-O, perfect, personal, exact obedience. Had Adam acted with person, per, perfect, personal, exact obedience, he would have graduated or passed from the probationary lower reality to the higher reality, which he was originally intended for. That's what he was made for. That's what you and I were made for. But as we all know, this is the account with Adam. He failed. We failed. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam. The greater Adam prevailed. Christ lived with PPEO, perfect personal exact obedience. And he died for us. And as Paul tells us in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Now notice verse 3 of our text. 
tells us that Christ tells us, I'm sorry, that God has blessed us in Christ. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And the Christ that he has blessed us in, this Christ has ascended to the right hand of his father. He has the last Adam, has passed his probationary state, and he is now in the originally intended place. He's passed to heaven, the higher creation. So beloved, take a moment this Sunday morning to do just some really, really basic logic. If we are in Christ, which we are, and God has blessed us in Christ, which he has, and Christ has ascended to the throne room of God, which he has, then where else could our blessings occur other than in heaven? That's where they occur. And what else could those blessings be other than Christ himself? I think most of the Christians I talk to, they don't get this idea. Or maybe worse, they don't seem to care. They want God to bless them with physical stuff, with physical blessings, to deal with problem X in their marriage or X in their life or X or Y or Z over here. But what he's done is far, far greater. Although it's difficult for us to see from our vantage point. Now, as we move forward, I want us to look real quickly at verses four and five of our text. Four and five, they say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So God has chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the very world. And for what purpose? He chose us so that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the fact that he chose us before the foundation of the world, it underscores or emphasizes the fact that the gift of grace is free. You were chosen in Christ before space and time. You're chosen in Christ before the foundations of the cosmos. And if it's in Christ that we are chosen before space, before time, it's not because of any work you could potentially do so that no man can boast. And notice here in our text what you are chosen for. You are chosen unto a life of holiness. Chosen to be holy. After all, the Lord our God says, be holy for I am holy. And the purpose is to be in my presence. And holy things aren't going to do very well in the presence of a holy God. Or unholy things are not going to do very well in the presence of a holy God. You see Paul here. He is not preaching some straw man Calvinism. He isn't preaching some soulless, hey, we're elect, we can't perish nonsense. Rather, he is preaching we are elected to holiness. Well, what does that mean then? It means we are elected to undergo the purgation of our sins. We are elected to suffering. We are elected to a cruciform life. We should also notice the text doesn't tell it, say that we are chosen for our own sake. Nowhere in scripture does it say that we are chosen for our own sake. Which means salvation is not the end game. That might be shocking to some of you. Salvation is not the end game. For many Christians, it seems like that is the case. If you sit down and talk to Christians, you'll quickly find out salvation for them, it's the telos. 
It's the end. It's the purpose. It's the reason they're in this thing. It's what they're after. It's what they want to be certain that they have secured. I want to make sure that I'm safe. I don't want to go to that place. I want to go to the other place. That, however, is a myopic, self-interested picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel that's all about you. It's a very narcissistic gospel. But I'll tell you, that is not Jesus' gospel. And it's not Paul's gospel. We are chosen, Paul says, for holiness that we might worship God. You are chosen for holiness that you might worship God. Continuing in verse 5, he tells us, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There is a glorious spiritual blessing. We are united to Christ. And as united to Christ, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And adopted sons and daughters, they share all of the privileges of sonships. The father's loving gaze. Think about this right now. The father of the entire cosmos. The father's loving gaze. The one that beholds the beloved son. The son begotten of his father before all world. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. The way that God looks at the son. That loving gaze. It falls on you. It lands on you. And he sees his very children. His heart goes out to you. And he is filled with love, pure, vibrant, world-creating, world-renewing, tender, merciful, fatherly love. That's what God sees right now when he looks at you. There's this remarkable, remarkable story that I heard once. And I don't know who to give credit to for the story. So it's not my story. And I assume that it's true. And the story was of this young couple who had their first child and they have this child and they're just you know googling all over it just all because you know when you have your first baby right that that baby can do no wrong and you want to show it to everyone you're such a proud young parent and this couple they go over to show the child to the grandparents to, to the, the young girl's parents the young mother's parents and they're sitting there and they're talking and they're looking at the baby and and she goes, yeah, mom, it's, it's funny. Like, my husband and I, we just have no idea where this baby's dark hair comes from. We just don't get it because my husband and I, we're so blonde, we're so light, we just don't get it. And the mother looks at her and she says, well, your, your father's got dark hair. And the girl looked kind of confused and says, mom, I'm adopted. And the mother says, oh, yeah, I always forget. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I always forget. Those must have been the most remarkable words that that, that daughter ever heard. <clears throat> God does not view you as his adopted children. You are his child. You have been reborn. Your DNA has been altered, changed, transfigured to match the unassailable purity of the one born of the virgin. You're a pneumatological, a spiritual creature. You've died to your lineage. Not all Israel is Israel. That doesn't matter. You have new DNA right now. DNA that matches the DNA of Christ. Adopted children are fully and completely children of their parents. And we, you and I, 
having been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, are adopted and share all the blessings of sonship, all the blessings of the Son of God, namely entrance into his luminous, effulgent, radiant presence. That's what the Son gets, to bask in the presence of the Father. That's what you get, to bask in the presence of the Father, blessing him, rejoicing in his very presence, unmediated access. Loving Father, good fathers do not deny their children access to them. Imagine what type of monstrous father you would have to be if your children are wanting access to you and you're denying it. You never hear any older father or old man on his deathbed saying, you know what? I wish I wouldn't have dedicated so much time to my children. They really got in the way of X, Y, or Z. I haven't, I haven't heard that yet. No, what do good fathers do? Loving fathers fling their doors and their arms wide open. And they spread a feast for their children when their children want to be with them. Welcome home. Let's eat together. Is there anything better than feasting with the ones that you love? In my 35 years of existence, I don't know if I can, I can think of anything that is much better than gathering around a table in this beautiful, edible world that God has given to us. Right? God didn't have to give us an edible world, but he gave us an edible world. And we get to gather with those that we love and to eat and drink and bask in the presence of those that you love. And this brings us to our final, very brief point. The cosmic purpose, the cosmic purpose, our final point. In verse 9 and 10 of our text, Paul lays out in brief, in a brief outline, the entire purpose and the history of history. Well, in verse 9 and 10, you get the entire history of history in short. They read, making known to us the mystery of his will. Here is the mystery of God's sovereign will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And what was his plan? Unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. There it is. Paul tells us the mystery of the sovereign God's will. That is to unite all things, including us. Wretched, defiled creatures to unite all things, including us, in Christ. Grand cosmic unity, familial unity. We're not talking here of the counterfeit, underhanded, cheap facade of unity our politicians they traffic in. Let's all be unified. Oh, we're seeking unity here. No, we're talking about a unity that is cemented and held together by pure love. The self-giving love of the triune God. Undoubtedly, the most famous, popular, or well-known passage in all of Scripture is John 3.16. see it all over the place. You see it at sporting events. People hold them up. Football players will put it under their eyes, their eye black, and they'll carve it in there. It's the fallback verse. If somebody says, what's your favorite Bible verse? And they never actually read the Bible. They're like, well, I know that one. I would say it's not a good one to have as your favorite. Everyone knows it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The book of Ephesians 
it might be in light of that verse summarized this way. For God so loved the Son, he gave him the world. And we, having been united to the Son, are brought before the face of the Father. Probably not as catchy as John. But I'm not the writer that John is. He was gifted with the Holy Spirit. For God so loved the Son, he gave him the world. And we, being united to the Son, are brought before the face of the Father. That's the grand purpose. The purpose that subsumes all other lesser, lower order purposes up into it. Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ. The God that is truly and completely our Father. God for us. The sovereign, electing, predestining, redeeming, adopting, super abundantly gracious God of the cosmos. Amen. Let us continue to worship God as we pray and come before the presence of the Father in prayer. Father God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You've been our rock, our refuge in all generations. Before the mountains, the seas, and the skies were brought forth, you were. Indeed, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are our God, our covenantal Lord. God with us and God for us. You have called us out of dust, but through the work of your son, by our spiritual union with him, we will not return to dust. Father God, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Father God, and we confess that we know that right now, although it might not seem like it, but right at this very moment, you are moving us from dust to glory. Father, we long for your presence, the great gift of your presence. And the days and the weeks, they grow long as time and loved ones. They are swept away from us as if they were a dream. But we know that a thousand years in your sight, Father God, are but a day, but a moment. And you govern each and every one of those moments with equity. You govern the moments with love, with your sovereign, electing, predestining purpose. We rejoice, Father God, in the work of your son, apart from whom we would be brought to an end by your holy and righteous wrath. For you are holy, and our iniquities have been set before you. Our secret sins are brought into the light of your presence. Father, it would be fitting and just for all of our days to pass away under your wrath. For all of our years to be brought to an end like a sigh. But you have adopted us as your sons and daughters. We come before you right now as flesh of your flesh. And you have thrown your doors open to us. Inviting us to feast with you at your table. Help us to learn this truth anew this week, Father. Help us to be satisfied each morning with your steadfast, never changing love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. As your children, Father, we know that your favor is upon us. We pray that you would establish the work of our hands and that we would be edifying <clears throat> to you until you come again in glory to bring each and every one of us your children home. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> one God, now and forevermore. Amen.